Take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 26, if you would. Um, As I read this, you're going to think, didn't we already see this passage one time? Uh, Back in 1 Samuel 24, David spared Saul's life. And at the end of it, you'll, you'll remember Saul apologized to David, promised that he wouldn't seek after David's life again. Well, guess what? Two chapters later, Saul is pursuing David's life, and David has a chance to to take Saul's life, but he spares it, and then Saul apologizes, and uh, lather, rinse, repeat. That promise that Saul had made had about a one-chapter shelf life, and he's hunting David once again. Listen to God's word, 1 Samuel 26, starting at verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, is not David himself uh, hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east side of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where, uh, David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I won't strike him twice. David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or or his day will come to die, or he'll go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Take now the spear that's at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who's like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not kept watch over your Lord. The Lord's anointed. And now we see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, O Lord, uh, my Lord, O King. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For 
what have I done? What evil's on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is his men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered, Here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You'll do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God will stand forever. I have no doubt everybody in this room knows the name Adolf Hitler, but I wonder how many of you know the name Adolf Eichmann. What Hitler was as the face of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, Eichmann was the engineer of it. He facilitated and managed the mass deportation of millions of Jews to the death camps of World War II. Uh, Years later, after the world had come to recognize the wickedness of the Nazi regime, Eichmann was questioned about his role. And his response was, I was simply doing my job. He showed up each day, he did his duties, he went home. That was all it was. He was a very plain man. He showed up each day, did his work, that was it. It was actually not until uh, Hannah Arendt wrote a book about him, a work in which she entitled, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, that he really became famous. The two Adolfs preach a very important message to us. Evil can wear many faces. It can be radical and monstrous, or it can be banal and mundane, but evil is evil. And that is so easy to miss because we think of that we think about evil typically in human terms, not in theological terms. In human terms, we tend to think of evil people as really bad people, those who take life, those who destroy others, and so on. But in theological terms, evil is simply the failure to believe, trust, and obey God. A biblical example of that would be David's grandson, Rehoboam. Uh, We see this. I want you to hear how Rehoboam is summarized. His life is summarized in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. 
So King Rehoboam grew strong in Jerusalem and reigned. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite, and he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. What was evil about him? He, he did so much, some very foolish things that would eventually lead to the division of Israel into the, the, the northern and southern kingdoms, but that's not what made him do evil. According to this verse, what was evil about him was that he did not seek the Lord. Let that sink in for a moment. The greatest spiritual dilemmas and moral dilemmas that you and I face are not those extraordinary ethical problems that are so often debated at the cultural level, but you and I are not facing them on a daily basis. You're probably not wrestling with questions about abortion. You're probably not wrestling with questions uh, uh, about homosexuality personally and so on. The greatest spiritual dilemma that we face day by day, sometimes moment by moment, is the dilemma of whether or not to trust and seek after God. It's true for, for even folks that have been a Christian for many years. The hardest part of being a Christian sometimes is believing the God we believe in. You just think of Adam and Eve at the fall. They were created in the image of God. They had walked with God all their lives. They had known nothing but his goodness and faithfulness. But then along comes the serpent. He comes to them. He says, you know, the reason God doesn't want you to eat the fruit is he knows that in the day that you eat of it, you'll become like him. Now they should have said, become like him. We are like him. We're made in his image. But what made the fall so evil was that they didn't trust that God really loved them or cared for them. And so too for us, you know, just as an earthly child can shatter their parent's heart by not believing that the parent really cares for them, not believing they can really trust their parent, we cause no greater offense to God than when we will not trust him or take him at his word. We've been studying the life and exploits of David over the last few months, and we've seen David face a number of substantial dilemmas, whether to risk his life, risk exposure to Saul in order to go protect the smaller villages that were being attacked by the Philistines. Uh, We saw the temptation last chapter to kill Nabal. We saw twice the opportunity to dethrone and kill Saul so that David could take his place. You know, none of those are the greatest temptation toward evil that David would face. The greatest temptation David would face would be unbelief. And specifically for David, it's going to be to trust men rather than God. You know, we've said this before, but David is in this training period. He's been anointed as king. And yet he hasn't received the kingdom. And what God is doing is training David, often, more often than not, through trials. We'll see this in the life of David. David is at his best when things are at their worst. And so God is training him. And in this chapter, God is training David to see two things. One, that trusting in men leads to failure. 
And trusting in God leads to success. Two very simple points, and that's what we're going to work through tonight. Trusting in men leads to failure. Trusting in God leads to success. So that, let's look at the first thing. Trusting in men leads to failure. You know, God's training ground is rarely easy. As I said, David needs affliction in his life. When David was at his most prosperous, David was at his worst. We could say of David, affliction killed its thousands, but prosperity its tens of thousands. That's why David could say later in life in Psalm 119, 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. David's training ground, and ours as well, is often in affliction. Now, I mentioned that the last time David and Saul interacted, they drew up something of an informal peace treaty. That was back at the end of 1 Samuel 24, if you want to look there with me. David had an opportunity to take Saul's life. He and his men were hiding in a cave, and Saul just happened to step into that cave to relieve himself, and David cut off the corner of his robe, but he didn't cut off his life. And at the end there in verse 17, Saul seems repentant. He said to David, you're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. And then in the latter part of verse 19, Saul says, may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done for me this day. But if you look at the last line of, of chapter 24, you can see David's trust for Saul isn't too high. Saul went home, David and his men went up to the stronghold. In other words, I'm going to give this promise a little bit of time to ripen. By the time we come to chapter 26, Saul has already repented of his repentance. And so once again, he's hunting David. And David's learning incredibly valuable lessons here, the first of which is men's promises fail. As sincere as Saul seemed, he can't be trusted. You know, David's going to spend his life in a position where people are going to want to take advantage of him. They're going to want what David has to offer, and they're going to make him all sorts of promises. They're going to give him all sorts of temptations to make deals and treaties with them. And God is teaching him, you cannot put your confidence in the promises of men. And David needs to understand, as well-intended as men's promises may be, Saul may have been completely sincere in 1 Samuel 24. Only Yahweh's promises can provide real, lasting security. That's why the greatest kindness we can do for one another is remind one another of the promises of God. We'll come back to that. And then, and then God teaches David a second lesson. Not just do God, men's promises fail, but men's plans fail. You know, back in 1 Samuel 13, Saul had made an unlawful sacrifice. Samuel says to him, the kingdom is going to be torn from you. And the kingdom was then given to David, or at least it was promised to David in chapter 15. Well, what's happened for the last 11 chapters is that despite God's word to Saul that the kingdom is being ripped from him and will be given to another, Saul has repeatedly hunted David's life, believing that he can prevent God's plan to make David king from coming to pass. Saul's plans, if you think about it, they've cost Israel a decade or more of hunting, here he's using 3,000 
chosen soldiers. These are the best warriors in Israel, and they're devoted to, to killing David. It's been a major distraction, and it's been a major burden on the nation's treasury. This has been where Saul has directed almost all of his attention for at least a decade. You know, he hasn't been able to touch David, has he? It's, it's actually embarrassing to think that this king with 3,000 choice men has hunted David with 600 ne'er-do-gooders for at least a decade, and he can't catch him. This is God's curriculum for teaching David that when man's plans run contrary to God's plans, God's plans and God's promises win. And then third, God's teaching David that men's protections fail. In this scene, Saul is encamped with 3,000 choice warriors around him. He should be the safest man on the face of the earth at this point. David says to a couple of his guys, and this, by the way, we've talked about this before, the names in David's life get really, really confusing because you have Joab and you have Abner and you have Abishai and so on. It's very hard to keep these straight. You may do well to keep a list of who's who in the life of David. But David says to some of his men, who wants to go down there with me into Saul's camp? And Abishai says, I'll go. And so the two go down into the encampment by night. They make it past this encampment, this circle of 3,000 men. They make it past Abner, the commander of Saul's army. They make it all the way to Saul, who is out cold. There's a, a funny interaction here between David and Abishai. It's similar to what we saw back in chapter 24 as David's soldiers are saying, hey, this is the time. You need to kill him. God's given him into your hand. Well, Abishai says the same thing here. God's given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, Abishai knows by now that David has some scruples about killing the king. And so he says, let me do it. You won't even have to get your hands dirty. I'm going to grab his spear and I'm going to stick it straight through his head. I'll make a great first impression. Look what David says in verse 10. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he'll go down into battle and perish. David's saying here, Yahweh's going to take care of this. I don't need you to protect me. And I think David would say, Now, Yahweh, I'd love it if you did it today. That would be great. If you'd go ahead and strike him down, but... Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And then David says, again, kind of a funny interaction here. At the end of verse 11, he says, take the spear and the water jar and let us go. But if you read verse 12, it says David took the spear. It almost seems like he thought, you know what? I don't think I want Abishai to have that spear. I'll take it and then we'll go. What's the lesson David's learning here? Saul had... 3,000 choice soldiers camped around him. Two men snuck through their lines all the way to Saul. Men's protections fail. Even if you have the greatest army in the land, they cannot protect, protect you against the Lord. Look at the end of verse 12. How did it happen? How did they get past the, the watchmen, past the troops, all the way to Saul? It says, verse 12, they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. No doubt they had a, a formation that was intended to protect, all the, uh, to protect Saul. 
yet they were all snoozing soundly. Well, let's just follow with what David does next. He leaves the camp. He climbs a far hill. He calls out to, the, to Saul's camp. He doesn't call Saul. He calls Abner, the commander of Saul's army. Look at verse 15. Are you not a man? He's sort of mocking him here. And who's like you in Israel? You're the highest up. You're Saul's right-hand man. Why haven't you kept watch over the king? One of the people came in to destroy the king. What you've done is, is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you haven't kept watch over your Lord. If it sounds like David's being extreme by saying that Abner deserves to die, that's actually been military practice throughout most of history, that if a watchman falls asleep, and an attack is made while they're sleeping, they will be put to death, oftentimes by their own comrades. David's saying to Saul through Abner, you can't trust your own armies. You can't trust even your commander Abner. I think Saul even realizes that in verse 21, that David was more faithful to protect him than the men whose job it was to protect him. David's protecting him from Abishai. Abner's not aware anything's going on. And so Saul says, my life was precious in your eyes this day. This is a lesson for David. We can't put our trust in the protection of men. And so we see this. You can't trust in men's promises. You can't trust in men's plans. And you can't trust in men's protection. So if David cannot trust in men... In whom can he trust? Only trusting God will give success. That's the second thing. At every turn where men have failed, God succeeds. So trust God, David. You know, we see in this passage, God's promises succeed. How is it that David could do such an audacious thing as to wander right into the middle of this encampment? The same way David could fight Goliath. How could David, a pipsqueak, go up against a giant. God had made him a promise that had not yet been fulfilled. David was going to be king. And in a sense, until that promise was fulfilled, David's essentially invincible because he knows that God's promises cannot fail. And God's promises, Saul's promises fell right to the ground, but God's promises have no expiration date. They cannot fall. They cannot fail. David knew the words of Numbers twenty-three nineteen. You remember that as a king, he had to copy at least the Torah. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God always keeps his promises. Let me just ask you, what promise of God are you most struggling to believe in right now? We all have them. We all have struggles to, to, to trust God, whether he's working all things for our good, whether he's, he's really, uh, the, the word is powerful to work, that he'll build his church. We all have various areas that we struggle to trust the promises of God. I have a good friend who, uh, he's one of those that highlights on every page of his Bible, and some of you do that too, and some of you can't stand that, but he, he had a color-coding scheme of, of how he would highlight different things, and he always highlighted or underlined the promises of God in red. And you know why? Because the blood of Christ 
guarantees that the promises of God are ours. 1 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yea and amen, or their yes in Him. Uh, Let me just say this. If there is anybody in here who is not trusting in God, there is a promise that you need to be aware He's going to keep as well. When Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon, He will return to judge the living and the dead, and He will separate the sheep and the goats, and He will take us all either into the presence of abundant joy for those who have trusted in Him, or we will be cast into the lake of fire with endless sorrow. He will keep His promise that He is coming soon. So even if you do not trust in Christ, you need to know He will keep His promises. So His promises will succeed. We also see here God's plans succeed. David says, Abishai, you don't need to kill him. Because God's got a plan, and his plan can't fail. Now, this is an exercise in patient obedience. David knew that trusting God's will requires following God's word. Theologians, and this is a great point if you've never thought through this before, theologians distinguish between the revealed will of God or, and the hidden will of God. The revealed will of God is what he's told us in the scriptures. His will for our lives— That's that's what he's told us to do. The hidden will or the secret will is how his plans are coming to be unfolded day after day after day. And so just just to put those two things side by side, I, I think of Joshua, my eldest son. I don't know if God's calling him to be a doctor or a lawyer, a missionary or an auto mechanic. But I do know this, according to the scriptures, God's will for him is his sanctification. God's secret will is that unfolding of earthly events that Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about that belongs only to God. How do those plans fit together? As we await the secret will of God, the hidden plan of God to be revealed, we are to live our lives according to his revealed plan, his revealed will. You know, that's David's issue here. He doesn't know when he's going to become king. That's the secret will of God. That's the plan that's hidden from him. But what he does know is his duty is to remain faithful. That's why he's not to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And so he knows that God's plans will succeed. And then third, God's protections succeed. Saul's men fell asleep. Psalm 121 He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. What's so wonderful is David's had chapter after chapter after chapter to be his classroom to learn about the protection of God. So you go back to chapter 23, Saul's just about to catch David. He's chasing him in the hills, and then all of a sudden, the Philistines attack, and Saul and his army have to go. And and fight off the Philistines. And David is spared by the sovereignty of God. And then chapter 24, Saul's hunting David. And all of a sudden, God brings Saul into the cave at En Gedi to be at David's mercy. And, And then chapter 25, he hears even Abigail's testimony. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. 
David knows even his own men can't protect him, but his life is safe in Yahweh's hand. Listen to David's words, Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Man fails, God succeeds. We need to be utterly convinced of that because the greatest evil we can commit in our lives is to believe that God is not trustworthy. Well, let's think about the converse of that. What's the most honoring thing we can do for God? It's not to travel the world and evangelize nations that have never heard the gospel, though that is good. It's not to preach the greatest sermon in the history of the world, though that is good. The most honoring thing we can do for God is simply to trust him. I quoted Thomas Watson on Wednesday evening, and I'm going to close with it again this evening. No way can we bring more honor to God or make his crown shine more brightly. He doesn't mean we actually shine the crown, but it shines more brightly to a lost and dying world than by trusting him. But you know, just as we close, we see a success of David here, but that's all going to crumble when we come to chapter 27. In chapter 27, that trust that we see on display here, it's going to crumble to the ground. And David starts to trust, actually not in God, not in other men, but himself and how he can scheme and save himself. We're going to sing in a moment a a metrical version of Psalm 146, but just listen to Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Put not your confidence in princes, in a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. I had never thought about this before until I was reading Matthew Henry's comments on this verse. He says, David is supposed to have penned this psalm, and he himself was a prince, a mighty prince, as such it might be thought. Who was the greatest danger for David to put his trust in? It was himself. And the same is true for you and me. That we are so prone to trust in our own obedience and trust in our own righteousness. But we can't. Because like David, and his life at times crumbles, so does ours. His faith at times crumbles. We can't even trust in our own faithfulness. Only the Lord Jesus deserves our deepest trust. And so the story of David and all of his successes and all of his failures, as with every other biblical character, it points us inevitably and wonderfully to the one who alone is trustworthy, who alone is worthy to be the king who sits on the throne of our hearts, the Lord Jesus. Put no confidence in princes. Put the fullness of your faith in the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray together. God, men will disappoint us. Uh, Men will betray us. Their plans will fail. They cannot protect us. We can't even do those things for ourselves. But you, O God, your promises will stand. Your plans will come to pass, and you alone can protect us. So build our faith. Like David, help us to go through that curriculum of learning to trust you, that you alone are worthy of our hope and our faith. In Jesus' name.
Amen.